Hello and welcome to the New Vine Church podcast. On the episode today, you'll be listening to a message from Andrew Cole preaching in our Psalm series called Songs for Every Season on Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. His love endures forever. We really hope you enjoy this wonderful psalm. Uh, as we come close to finishing up this series, we'd like to encourage you and welcome you to come and join us in person. We're so uh, excited to be back joining together at our physical location in Maryland last Sunday. Uh, So we'll be able to meet back together now. So we invite you to come along and join us there. Otherwise, you can tune in online and watch our live streaming services each Sunday morning or find us on YouTube. Uh, A couple of things as well, just to let you know, we're having a members forum. We encourage you to get along to that. If you're a member or someone who has called New Vine home after the um, the morning service, sorry, this coming Sunday, the 14th of November, we'll be having a meeting where questions can be asked about the new constitution being put together uh, and just a time for hearing more about that. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this episode. We'll also be hearing um, from the resource called The Bible Project in one of their videos today. We highly encourage you to go and check them out have a look at their resources, learn from them. Uh, We are so appreciative of those guys and all they put together. Anyway, God bless you, and we'll see you again soon. Hello, thanks for joining us again with our next uh, song for every season as we continue in our series on the Psalms. Uh, Today we're doing Psalm 136. It's a classic psalm, and I feel like last week was a little bit of an intro to it uh, in the sense that we talked about the importance of uh, self-talk, of coaching ourselves Uh, the renewing of our mind and allowing foundational truths to embed themselves deeply uh, in our life. Come on, soul, we will bless the Lord. Uh, So today I feel as we jump into Psalm 136, there's some terrific things for us to take away. How about we just quickly pray and invite God to minister to us by his word. Father, we do just uh, thank you for these words, these lyrics to songs that uh, uh, cause our hearts to soar. Lord, we do invite you into this space today. Uh, speak to us, Lord, guide us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, uh, thanks Thanks for joining with us. Um, there's a repetition uh, in this uh, psalm here compared to Psalm 103. Most modern translations land and repeat this phrase, his love endures forever. This uh, phrase, his love endures forever, is repeated 26 times in the psalm. We're going to read it together uh, later. And there's 26 punchy statements uh, that that go before each time. So it's sort of liturgical. It was probably designed to be uh, read in a congregational setting and then repeated by the congregation. And each one of the statements uh, is a reminder of the great things that God has done. Last week, we talked about this the importance of this spiritual principle of laying memorial stones in our lives, finding ways to not forget. We must remember, we must not forget. And this song shares the same ethos around enhancing memories, keeping the foundations of faith solid in our lives. And so I won't dwell on those principles again today, but I do encourage you to look back uh, to last week's material from Psalm 103 to grab a hold of that, because really important principles, particularly in the lives of children and our grandchildren. In Psalm 136, this phrase, his love endures forever, is repeated 
26 times. Did I say that? It's repeated 26 times. Uh, the first nine times this statement is said, it's all in the context of speaking about God's supremacy and his nature as God and crediting him for the awesome creation that we live in. These nine statements are all quite timeless and have been incorporated into many songs of worship. They'll seem quite familiar to you. The next bunch uh, are, are around the key events that affected the historical life of the Jewish nation. And so they look back to the things that God had done uh, with his people. And then it finishes with two uh, final statements, which again are kind of timeless ones. Now, that 15 statements in the middle are quite raw. As we read, you'll see this is the God of the argy-bargy. For us, they are ancient Old Testament, distant stories, not ones that we probably identify with personally, emotionally. But if you stop and think about it, and this is something I really want to encourage you to do today, we each have our own versions of got the story of God rescuing us, protecting us, deflecting harm away from us onto others when it could have been us, finding our way through for us in our difficult situations and providing a hope where there was none. And so these 15 statements trace those things in the life of Israel. But we have our own story that's parallel to that. I actually want to come back to talking about this God in the thick of it, the rescuer, uh, later. Um, and I do want to play with that and investigate the differences, you know, the nuances of how we understand the love of God. But uh, let's, just, uh, let's just jump on because this is all about um, us creating memories and not forgetting the past so as to create faith for the future. Now, um, New Vine's not a church that's particularly built around liturgy. Uh, at, at Easter time, uh, in most churches, the, wor the worship leader will say, He is risen! And the congregation will say, he is risen indeed. <laughs> An example of that toing and froing that helps to reinforce important things. He is risen. He is risen indeed. For those of you who have been around New Vine a while, we tend to say, he's up. He's up and about. Um, when I visited the Solomon Islands uh, with the, um, the Solomon Island Church, they, they have a phrase that they like to repeat and they use it to punctuate their prayer meetings. They use it to begin and end their services and the, the worship leader or the pastor will just, you know, after a little pause, he'll, he'll, he'll give a sort of a knowing look and everybody knows that they're going into it and he'll say, praise the Lord. And the congregation will shout out, hallelujah, amen. Praise Jesus, he'll say, hallelujah, amen. Glory to God. And the congregation again, hallelujah, amen. These key truths that you create rhythm about so that you learn from them. Now in Psalm 136, there's a critical word that's repeated over and over again. It's the word hesed, um, and it means the loving, loyal, steadfast, unchanging mercy and kindness of God. And usually it's just translated love, but it's a word that means so much more than that. Um, just to give you an idea of the challenge that uh, translators have had in, in bringing this word over into uh, the, the English, I've just got a little bit of a history here that will come up there as I speak. Um, I'm not even going to have a try at the first one. That's the, that's the ancient Greek way of changing, uh, translating uh, this word hesed. Uh, and then we get something that looks a little bit um, familiar to us, miseria cordium. It's Latin in the Latin Vulgate from around 300. Then as we start to get into the, the, the very first um, 
Bibles being translated into English. It's, it's an older English for us, obviously. In 1388, John Wycliffe, Greet Mercy. <laughs> uh, the Coverdale Bible, 1533, Goodness, Goodness, Goodness. I'm not quite sure. They clearly didn't have spell checker back in these days. Uh, the Geneva Bible, 1599, again, Mercy, something that relates to mercy. King James Version, originally Loving Kindness or Loving Kindness. Um, the the, the Dury Reims version um, used a lot in the Catholic um, church uh, from 1752. And now it's starting to look familiar. Mercy, they finally got their spell checker together. Um, and then it became very popular to translate this word loving kindness, putting two words together, the King James, the revised and the authorised version. Um, the Young's literal translation by the time we got to the mid-1800s was translating this kindness. The RV went back to mercy, uh, Derby, loving kindness. Uh, by the time we got into the mid-1900s, this phrase steadfast love had become a popular way to translate this word, steadfast love. The Amplified, of course, likes to take a word and make it into a whole bunch and in the 1980s translated it loving kindness and put in brackets graciousness, mercy, compassion. Most of our modern translations like the Good News and the Holmans now just say his love is eternal or a more traditional one in the NIV that we've, probably many of us are familiar with, his love endures forever. His love and mercy keeps on keeping on. It endures, it's durable. It reminds me of some of those old paint claims, a bit like the old Berger paint, keeps on keeping on. His love and mercy keep on keeping on. It's in, it endures, it's durable. But also like the old trust British paints, sure can. Um, trusting God's love and mercy, we sure can. It's this enduring, durable um, type of love. While we're talking about paints, a mate said to me recently, he said, how come I have to paint my house every 20 years? Those indigenous brothers, they painted it on rocks 20,000 years ago and it's still there. Why aren't we using their paint? I think it's quite a good point. <laughs> anyway, let's get back to the main point. It keeps on keeping on. His love endures forever. Uh, what I want us to do now is watch a beautiful segment uh, from the Bible Project. It's a video that looks in to the meaning of this word chesed. Now, I can't really say it properly, but that was my best go. Um, so enjoy this. It, it, it jumps immediately into the book of Ruth because Ruth becomes a little bit of a, a human example of what this loving kindness mercy word actually means. Enjoy. If you tried to describe what God is like, it could be difficult or daunting. But when the people who wrote the Bible pondered the mystery of God, they consistently described God's character in this way, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. We're going to look at this fourth phrase, loyal love. It translates the Hebrew word chesed, which is hard to translate into any language because it combines the ideas of love, generosity, and enduring commitment all into one. Chesed describes an act of promise-keeping loyalty that is motivated by deep personal care. Like in the story of Ruth, Ruth is a foreigner married to an Israelite man, but tragically her husband dies along with his brother and his father. All Ruth has left is her widowed mother-in-law, Naomi, who has nothing to give her. Naomi tells Ruth she should go back to her people, but instead, Ruth promises to stay by Naomi's side and take care of her. And as other people watch Ruth keep this promise over time, they call it an act of chesed. 
notice that Ruth's chesed is not conditional or based on Naomi's worth. Rather, it's an expression of Ruth's character. She just is a generous and loving person who keeps her word. That's chesed. Now, Ruth's loyal love is truly inspiring, but the one who shows the most enduring chesed in the Bible is God. Like in the story about Jacob, who is a treacherous liar even to his own family. But despite that, God chooses him and repeats the promise he made to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, that he would have a huge family through whom God would restore his blessing to the nations. And so 20 years later, when Jacob realizes how undeserving he is, he says to God, I'm not worthy of all the chesed you've shown me. And he's right. But God's chesed was never about Jacob's worth in the first place. It's a display of God's generous loyalty to his promise. God's chesed continues into the story of Jacob's descendants, the Israelites. When they're enslaved by Pharaoh in Egypt, we're told that God remembered his promise to Abraham and Jacob, so God defeats Egypt and raises up Moses to liberate the people and lead them into the promised land. And in the story, this is called an act of chesed because it was about God keeping his word. Now, on their way to the promised land, the Israelites are scared of the nations around them and they doubt that God can protect them. So the people threaten to kill Moses and appoint a new leader to take them back to Egypt. God is understandably hurt and angry, but Moses steps in and says, forgive the sin of these people because of your great chesed. Notice that Moses asked God to forgive, not because the people deserve it, but because it's consistent with God's own character. And God agrees, and he recommits himself to a people that don't want to be committed to him. In the Bible, God is loyal and loving for no other reason than it's just who God is. Of course, he wants his people to respond with chesed in return, but even when they don't, God's chesed remains. The prophet Hosea compared Israel's chesed to a morning mist. It's here one moment and gone the next. But God's chesed is enduring. Like in the celebration of Psalm 136 that opens by saying, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and then 26 times repeats, His chesed is forever. And so, after centuries of Israel betraying their commitment to God, and after humanity's long history of violence and death, God still kept his promise in a dramatic and drastic way, by becoming human and binding himself to us in the person of Jesus. And the people who followed Jesus of Nazareth said that in him they encountered the God of Israel who is full of loyal love and faithfulness. Jesus is the ultimate loyal and loving human. And in his life, death, and resurrection, God opened up a new future for all of us and for all of creation. And God did this because it's just who God is, generous, loving, and eternally loyal to his promises. And when we experience the purity and power of God's loyal love shown through Jesus, it compels us to reimagine why and how we can show chesed back to God and to the people around us. This is what it means to say that God is overflowing with loyal love. That was good, wasn't it? 
As we can see, Ruth is a human picture for us of this chesed word and encapsulates that loving kindness, that mercy and loyalty. Perhaps I could give you some homework to do during this week and do a character study on Ruth, a living illustration of this chesed type of love. It's only four chapters, but there's plenty to read over and over again and to chew on. She, importantly, Ruth this is, was an outsider. Um, and she's imported into the Israelite family. Her faith is an import faith. She says, uh, your God will be my God to Miriam. And she becomes the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. And this reminds us that salvation is for all who believe. With that in mind, let's read together from the NIV. Let's read this passage together, these 26 statements. I've asked Jill to read it uh, with me uh, from the NIV. She's going to read the punchy bits, and I'm going to ask you to join with me and repeat the second part, second part with me. Maybe you'd like to stand with me. I know you're probably in your PJs uh, at home, but, but uh, let's imitate the honour and the awe that is represented in here. And uh, now that we understand what this word hesed actually means, um, his hesed, his love endures forever. Now, I know when you say it properly, you've got this grumbly thing going on, your th on in your throat, which is not part of our normal English. And I've had Dutch friends try to teach me how to say that. I'm just going to pronounce it with a silent K. I hope I'm no, no offence to our ancient Jewish friends. His kindness, mercy, his loyal love, his said love. I encourage you to focus on the thought that Jill reads and then just to repeat this. Your said love endures forever. Thanks, Jill. Take us in. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His said love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His said love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His said love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders. His hesed love endures forever. Who by his understanding made the heavens. His hesed love endures forever. Who spread out the earth upon the waters. His hesed love endures forever. Who made the great lights. His hesed love endures forever. The sun to govern the day. His hesed love endures forever. The moon and the stars to govern the night. His hesed love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. His hesed love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them. His hesed love endures forever. With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. His hesed love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea asunder. His hesed love endures forever. And brought Israel through the midst of it. His hesed love endures forever but swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea. His hesed love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness. His hesed love endures forever. To him who struck the great kings. His hesed love endures forever. And killed mighty kings. His hesed love endures forever. Sion, king of the Amorites. His hesed love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan. His hesed love endures forever. And gave their land as an inheritance. His hesed love endures forever. An inheritance to his servant Israel. His hesed love endures forever. He remembered us in our low estate. 
His hesed love endures forever. And freed us from our enemies. His hesed love endures forever. He gives food to every creature. His hesed love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven. His hesed love endures forever. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. <laughs> Praise Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Oh, thanks, Jill, for joining us with that. That was good. Now, now obviously, in uh, earlier English translations, they majored particularly on this merciful aspect of God's love. His love endures forever versus his mercy endures forever. When you stop and you think about mercy, it's not, it's not a common part, I think, of our modern way of thinking. It's not a part, you know, a common thing that we talk about. But mercy is a compassion and a forgiveness that you give to somebody else when you actually have the power to punish them or to harm them. Love has a broad meaning and it will include the idea of mercy and it also includes the ideas of kindness and favour towards affection or cherishing. And modern, com modern commentators, I think, uh, in keeping with what we looked at with the Bible Project, have opened up a helpful discussion to see the covenantal commitment that's in, that's in God's love, where we're focused more um, on the will of God to love and to care and less on the feelings. I think as the Bible Project guys, you know, they coined the phrase that loyal love. It's a kind, unwarranted, merciful, enduring and sacrificial type of love that's tough at times. It's the sort of love that Jesus put on a human body and showed us. Love at its, at its essence, at its best, true love is not Firstly, a feeling, but it's an act of the will. When it comes to our understanding of love, I believe our culture has moved away from a deep understanding of what I'd describe as a Christian worldview, where love is an expression of enduring honour, respect and action. Hollywood and modern culture has swung the pendulum away over into the romantic, into infatuation, into the erotic and into passionate love. And that's certainly a part of what love is. But without the balance, I think that can give quite a destructive and warped um, worldview. To bring this into focus, I've heard it said that in parts of the world where arranged marriage is normal, that the marriages begin cold and they grow hot. They commence as an act of will and affection and passion for the other person grows over time. Whereas in our Western marriages, they start hot and then they grow cold. And the, as the passion or the infatuation cools, often the commitment to that marriage is found wanting and unable to find a way forward. And so the marriage often ends. And more generally, I'd observe that I don't think Westerners cope well with the ugliness and the ambiguity of our existence. In our sanitised world, we pick up our neatly wrapped meat from the fridge section at the supermarket. Our nations are often in conflict with others, but we engage in our wars mostly through proxy nations that are caught in the middle. Or we engage in trade sanctions, which inflict terrible harm on poor populations, again, caught in the middle. Or if a war does break out, uh, it's, it's mainly fought at a distance using technology. So in our world, hardly, hardly ever are we going into a pen and choosing which chalk 
to roast for the night, for dinner tonight. And, and in our conflicts, it's not with swords drawn charging across an open field towards the screening enemy coming towards us. But we do live in the same brutal, broken world that we read about in ancient times where war, injustice, death and disease are as real as they've ever been. But we happen to live in a corner of it where the world is, where our world is quite sheltered from this. And I think there is an aspect of this which actually creates a delusion in our minds. And perhaps we all need to break free, break free in a way from the mamby-pambiness around this and to recognise God for who he really is. He's the merciful God. He's the God of the argy-bargy, the God who protects when he could punish us or just leave us to our suffering. It's not palatable uh, to talk about God's, God this way. It sort of creates a little bit of a bone in our throat. But this idea that God is a merciful God, um, it's, it's in keeping with the biblical teaching that places us in the midst of a cosmic struggle. There's a broken and busted world where God will eventually deal with evil once for all, but it is a broken and busted world. To the typical modern mind there's a, and, and the worldview of most of the media that, that represents this, it fundamentally lives without a belief in God. And when the argy-bargy of this broken world invades our sanitised space, this mindset can, can, can revert to accusing the God that they don't believe in. Why is it like that? Somehow blaming the God they don't believe in for the unjust favouritism in a broken world. I think we have to find our way to understand uh, the brokenness of this world and yet the unrelenting, beautiful, committed love that God has for those who seek him. And rather seeing the world is broken and that getting God involved in our journey is not only sensible, but it's actually wonderful. Uh, in this broken world, God wants us to involve him in the journey through this life. It's meant to be uh, a faith walk. I had a funny conversation with some friends recently where um, uh, city kids went out into the country and uh, they were away on holidays for a, for a while. And uh, while they're having a meal with the people who owned the, uh, the, the farming property, one of their kids says, oh, look, there's a snake. Lovely little, lovely snake. It was quite a big snake, apparently. <laughs> the farmer looks up, it's quite alarmed because it's actually a brown snake. It's a very deadly snake. Runs inside, gets his gun and actually blasts the snake, in, blasts the head off the snake right there in front of the kids. And uh, talking to my friend, he was just saying, this was the moment of the whole holiday. You know, our kids had never seen anything like that. that for the next three days, that was the central thing we were talking about. We don't live in a world, do we, that, that has that life and has that life and death. And uh, the young boy apparently was quite concerned that he was the one that saw the snake and he, he felt somehow that uh, it was his fault that the snake had died because he kind of pointed it out. And, and the, you know, that at, at that young age, not being able to see the importance of protection and, and, and those things as part of love as well. We live in this world where we collect our meat from the, uh, our, our glad wrapped covered meat from the fridge department. I also think sitting, sitting in our midst at Newvine, and we've heard this uh, story, you know, recently with Amy and Messman back from Ethiopia, you know, where, you know, uh, in the midst of being on an outreach, going out and telling people about Jesus, an angry crowd uh, uh, got together, threw rocks at them and attacked them and, and nearly burnt them to death in the back of a car. And, and Amy and Messman's um, testimony is that by God's grace, 
they were saved. He was their protector. He was their merciful God, the one that jumped in and helped them. We're also very familiar with uh, the story of one of our great glo- um, global partners um, with CFM, Christian Faith Ministries in Nigeria. I remember sitting uh, with some of the pastors there and, and understanding why they were why they were able to bridge build uh, with with some of the Muslim folk in their community. Because in the terrible uprisings where Muslims were fighting Muslims and, and a lot of people were dying, some of those pastors actually took Muslims into their houses and hid them away from the people who were coming to kill them. Those people owed their very lives to them. Uh, you know, this is the world that many other people, millions of people are living in. I feel like we are quite protected from that. But if I could encourage you to revisit your thinking about the argy-bargy of your life and look for God in the middle of it. See that you are actually in a spiritual battle where there's an enemy who's stalking around and he's trying to steal from you to kill you and to destroy you. And God is the merciful God, the God of loving kindness who protects you and has a future for you that is meaningful. We need to shift, I think, our worldview a couple of notches back this way. And I think it would be helpful for us to begin looking um, at the world again, seeing that we actually do have an enemy who is out to kill and destroy us. When you think about enemies, um, a strong enemy comes and attacks you, doesn't it, face to face. A weak enemy doesn't bring their soldiers out to confront a superior army in the open field. A weak enemy hides away and engages in sabotage and terror. And a very weak enemy even tries to think, make, make you think that they don't exist or that they pose no threat to you at all. When you think about these different views of an enemy, which one of them would best describe the way that you view Satan? Jesus himself said that he came to destroy the works of the enemy, that the enemy came to still kill and still still kill and destroy. And he's described as a roaring lion roaming around looking for someone to devour. We have a real enemy and God is the merciful God. Part of our walk with him is trusting him uh, in the midst of that argy-bargy. So I think we need to revisit our understanding of the God who protects us from the schemes of the enemy. And uh, when, I, when I come to the middle part of this psalm, we can, we can apply these principles in our hearts to our modern real world. God is the God of the argy-bargy. His hesed love endures forever. So, for example, um, his might is sufficient in the midst of our trouble. So when we get to verse 12 and we read, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, his love endures forever, he has a mighty hand and an outstretched arm to protect us as well. And verse 16, surely he leads us through our own wilderness to him who led his people through the wilderness. His love endures forever. We know the feeling of being in a wilderness and needing to trust God to take us through it. And uh, finally, verse 17 uh, he strikes down, <laughs> you know, great kings or powers in our life that intend us harm to him who struck down the great kings. His love endures forever. So as we wrap up our thoughts today, I'd like to give you one other spiritual challenge for this week. Could I ask you to set aside half an hour and write out this psalm by hand, copying the first nine couplets just the way they are and 
and the last two couplets just the way they are, but actually creating your own verses uh, in the middle of it, a personalised section that reminds yourself of how God's mercy and kindness has been evident to you over your life. Just to illustrate this, I had a go at this this week myself. Uh, I won't read you the first eight couplets. I'll just start with number nine uh, and then I'll, I'll read you a few of mine, which was just me remembering the way the merciful God had protected me or opened up ways in the wilderness in my life. Verse nine, the God who made the moon and stars to govern the night, his love endures forever. And then my personalised list. He opened my eyes to see my pride. His love endures forever. He healed my mum and fixed my knee. His love endures forever. He set me free from the three Ds. That was uh, drink, Dungeons and Dragons, the three Ds. He set me free from the three Ds. His love endures forever. He broke the power of career and position. His love endures forever. He gave me a heart for his holy church. His love endures forever. He brought me a bride from across the sea. His love endures forever. And others I love to do life with. His love endures forever. He took my words and gave them back. I spoke about that last week with my stroke. He took my words and then gave them back. His love endures forever. And brothers to help me stay on track. His love endures forever. He gives me food Sorry, he gives food to every creature. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven. His love endures forever. So bless the Lord, oh my soul. His merciful loving kindness goes on and on. Thank you, Jehovah, God of the Argy-Bargy. Go away from this message today being assured that God's love endures in your life. He is going to walk through this with you. Make sure you do your homework. Enjoy. Cheers.